0: Our sermon this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Go ahead and turn there uh, in, your, in your Bibles. We've been working through 2 Timothy for the last several weeks now, so I am just want to give us a quick recap uh, on what we have seen and what we have learned thus, thus far. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul says to Timothy... So first of all, 2 Timothy, written from Paul in a jail cell in Rome to Timothy, his buddy, his protege his uh, friend that he has mentored in the the faith and mentored into pastoral ministry. And this is his last letter of his life, the last letter that he's written that we have possession of today. Uh, So 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, remember the gospel and don't be ashamed of the gospel. Right? Some people are going to turn away, uh, but you, Timothy, I want you to stand firm. I want you to trust in the gospel. I want you to remember that Jesus has saved you and that the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's 2 Timothy 1. Second Timothy two, he expounds a little bit. Right, stand strong like uh, like an athlete. Stand strong like a farmer. Stand strong uh, like like a soldier. Persevere in the faith. Be strong, be rooted, don't uh, fall away. So so remember the gospel and stand strong in the gospel. And then the first half of 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we saw last week was all about godlessness and sin and sinners and how it's going to increase and how in the last days it's going to abound. And he gives dozens, 20, 30 uh, pictures and characteristics of sin and sinners and godliness and things that Timothy needs to be aware of, needs to watch out for. Needs to be on guard against, needs to avoid, and that 's kind of where we left off is second Timothy three nine this kind of expose on this kind of picture of sin and sinners and how dangerous they they are and so for the latter half of Second Timothy chapter three. Uh, Paul is going to instruct Timothy on how he should live now, in view of, and in relation to, and in response to these sin and sinners that are going to be persecuting him and opposing him and the gospel. So that's kind of where we're headed this morning. I'm going to read verses 10 through 15. Uh, Jason Slichter is going to preach next week on uh, on verses 16 and 17. So I'm really looking forward to forward to that. I'm going to read the verses 10 through 15, and then we'll pray and get started. You, however, you, Timothy, have followed my teaching. You follow my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While all evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes as we study your word together. And consider how you might be calling us to respond to it. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. We pray that you would sanctify us. We pray that you would grow us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. You, Timothy, however, you have followed my Teaching so so verses one through nine is this portrait, this picture of sin and sinners. Right, these people love themselves, they hate God, they're unholy, they take advantage of others, they are disqualified for the Christian life in every sense. Those are the characteristics of people that oppose God, of the enemies. And now you, Timothy, uh, you stand in contrast to them. You are different from from them. You're not like them. In, instead of instead of you know following the way of the world, you you have followed my example you followed Paul's example you followed my teaching the doctrine that i taught you from the scriptures you've believed it and internalized it and kind of taken ownership of it you followed my conduct right so you've watched how i behave you've watched how i treat other people you've watched how i act when no one else is around you've watched how i handle my finances. You've watched how I deal with temptation. You've watched how I, how I handle setbacks and, and uh, difficulties. You've watched how I respond when people attack me and when they criticize me. You've seen all of that and you have followed it. You've patterned your life after my own you followed my aim in life, so you've, you've seen what I care about, you've seen what I strive for, you've seen uh, what my hopes are and my dreams are, you've seen my vision for my life and the, and the mark that I intend to make on the world before I die, you've seen all of that, and you've adopted similar uh, you know, aspirations and visions and, and hopes and dreams for your life. I want to be a missionary, you want to be a missionary. I want to be a church planter, you want to be a church planter. I want to be a pastor, you want to be a pastor. You have followed my aim in life. You followed my, you followed my faith. Right? So, so you have, you've watched how I trust God when it seems that everything is lost, when it seems that, that there's no hope, when it seems like uh, the gospel is going to lose and the world is going to win. You've watched me trust God and have faith in him, and you have followed me in it. You have had faith in God's character and in God's word and in God's gospel. you followed my patience. Right? You've seen Timothy. You've exhibited me, Paul. Uh, you've seen me exhibit self-control, you've seen me be slow to anger, you've seen me wait on God's promises, even when they don't seem like they will ever come to pass. You've seen me do that, and you have been like me. You've been patient like me. You followed my, my love. You've seen me love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. You've seen me love my neighbor as myself. You've seen me care about them and look out for them. You have done that with me. You have followed me in that. You've seen me love God and neighbor, and you have followed me in loving God and my neighbor. You've seen my steadfastness, right? So you have have seen how I have done all of those things, love and faith and teaching and conduct and aim of life. You've seen all of those things, and you've seen me do it. Uh, with persistence you 've seen me persevere in them right you 've seen me persevere in in conduct and faith and love, and you along with me have persevered you have been steadfast in those things you 've followed me in my sufferings and my persecutions in verse eleven so you have have seen that i 'm willing to suffer for the gospel you 've seen that people are trying to hurt me you 've seen that when people who sit atop the the power structure and they hear this novel gospel that I'm bringing about about God saving the worst of sinners through grace and, and free grace being available to anyone and everyone, you've seen how people are threatened by that. You've seen how people don't like that and how they respond by, by persecuting me and trying to to hurt me. And you've seen me persevere, you've seen me endure, and you have followed me in it. You've been willing to suffer. You've been willing to suffer for the gospel and for the, the people of God and for the, the mission of God. you followed my example You have looked at my beliefs, my life, my conduct, and been like me, right? Uh, Verses 1 through 9 are the the bad guys, avoid them at all costs. They're a negative example. Verses 10 through 11 is Paul, the positive example, calling Timothy to emulate him, which kind of raises the question for us, like Paul can say with absolute confidence, you have followed my example, it was a good example, I'm glad you followed it, and I want you to continue following it. And it kind of raises the question as to whether we can say the same thing. Whether we can look at our life and, and honestly and rightly uh, determine that it is a life worth following. That the choices we make are worth emulating, right? Is our teaching and our doctrine worth following? Is our conduct and our life worth following? Is our faith and our patience exemplary? If, if there's a new person who, who uh, is new to the faith and they become a Christian, would we want them to look at us and model their life after our life? Would we want our kids to, to make the same choices that we make. We want new Christians to you know, look at my relationships, look at my finances, look at my habits, look at how I interact with my spouse, look at how I, how I parent my kids, look at those things, follow my example. Look at my prayer life, look at how I read my Bible, look at my involvement and commitment to my local church, look at how I serve and meet needs, look at what I do, and then I want you to do what I do. Are we comfortable saying that? Or would we, would we rather point, point someone in need of a mentor, point someone in need of an example to someone else? I'm not living a life that's exemplary right now, but look at them in, instead. Or maybe a better question is not not can you in all sincerity and in all honesty, uh, you know, say that your life is exemplary and worth following? But would would an objective third party that looks that you know that that kind of moves into the area and, and observes the lives of all the people around you, would that person point to you and say, his words, her words, their actions, thoughts, motivations, right? They, they, I want everyone to follow them and be like them because they are exemplary. Or are there areas of your heart, areas of your life where you're thinking, uh, I don't want people to know about that. I don't want people to follow me in that, I don't want, I think we would be better off if less people emulated me in this area rather than, than more. So Paul says, says uh, my, my, The example that I've set and the goal that I want Christians to aspire to is to live a life that is exemplary, live a life that is worth following, live a life that you can say, in all sincerity and in good conscience look at me, observe me, and follow me as I follow Jesus. And then specifically, uh, he, he drills down on the persecutions and sufferings that he experienced, and he gives three examples of them being in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which uh, you can read about in Acts chapter 13 through 14. So you can do that for homework, or I'll just give you a quick overview right here to see the kind of suffering and the kind of persecutions that Paul uh, is referring to when he says Iconium, Antioch, Iconium, and and Lystra. In Acts 13, uh, Paul, he's traveling with Barnabas, his buddy. Timothy's going to travel with him later. But on this first missionary journey, he's traveling with Barnabas. And he and Barnabas arrive in Antioch. They go into the synagogue. They're having a service, kind of like this one. And then the guy in front of the service basically says, does anyone have anything to say? Anyone have any words of encouragement that you would like to share with the rest of the people that are here this morning? And Paul says, "I do." Right? He says he says, "God God chose Israel to be his people, and He brought Israel out of Egypt and he brought them into the promised land and he He uh, ruled them with with judges and then he gave them King Saul and King David, and then later John the Baptist came and prepared the way for King Jesus and Jesus fulfilled everything from the Old Testament, but the religious leaders in Israel put Jesus on a cross, they murdered him, but he got up out of the grave, he was risen from the dead, he appeared to people like me, and now I am calling you to trust in Jesus so that you you can be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God. That's kind of the, the impromptu sermon that Paul preaches to the church in Antioch when they when they ask him. And everyone is thrilled. Everyone is excited. They say, "You're awesome. We love this. Please come back next next week. We want to hear more from you." He has no problem. So a week later, Paul comes back, and now word is spread, and there's a big, huge crowd. Everyone heard. Man, this. Crazy preacher last week was preaching new stuff, and he was fiery. And so there's a big, huge crowd. And now the Jewish leaders are jealous of the crowd that Paul has drawn. And they're mad that, that Paul is kind of indicting the people that they look to as their heroes and the people that they kind of aspire to be like. And they're mad. And so they go, they kind of pull rank. They go to the leaders of the city, and they say, please have Paul uh, removed, have him kicked out of our, of our city. And they do. So Paul leaves Antioch, and he goes in Acts chapter 14 to Iconium. And he does the same exact thing. He starts to preach again. Same thing happens. A bunch of people are coming to Christ. There's a revival And again, all of the unbelieving Jewish people start to persecute him, and factions start to form, and it's like this really politically polarized thing where it's like half and half. Everyone hates the other, the people that are for Paul hate the people that are against him and vice versa, and the city's about to fracture in half, and eventually Paul and Barnabas hear that the people that are against him are plotting to kill him, so they flee the city and they move on. Which brings us to Acts, the second half of Acts 14, uh, where they come to Lystra, they they come into the city and they see a man who has a disability he can't walk Paul heals him supernaturally and the man gets up and walks away and everyone that's watching is like oh my goodness that we've watched that that guy's been crippled for a long long time this is amazing and they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods they think that they're like gods who have incarnated themselves among men so they think that uh, Paul is Hermes and they think that Barnabas is Zeus. And they start to bow down to them and worship them and offer sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas were like, "Don't do that, please. We are not gods. We are witnesses to the one true God. We're witnesses to Jesus. We're not manifestations of false gods." And so, and, and they're like, literally, like pleading with these people, "Don't worship us. They're like, stop. This is bad. What, what you're doing is not good." And while they are. All of the, uh, like the, the Jewish leaders and the people that are upset and angry from before, they follow Paul from Antioch and Icon, they're like following him on Twitter, they follow them to Lystra, and now they're starting to incite uh, rage against Paul and Barnabas there. And this time they're not just trying to like, plot to kill Paul, they're not just trying to get people upset so that they actually do it, they stone, they stone them. So so they stone Paul, and they beat him until he's unconscious, and they think he's dead, and they leave him for dead, and then later, uh, you know, his his buddies kind of rally around him and get him up, and they kind of leave leave the city. But these are the kinds of persecutions that Paul is experiencing when he's talking in 2 Timothy about Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. He's saying every time, I I can't even get a word in edgewise. The second that I say anything about Jesus, people hate me. People want to de- platform me. People want to silence me. People want to violently, you know, punch me and hit me and, and kill me. These are the sufferings and these are the persecutions that I am enduring in these places. And yet, I endure them. From, and yet, from them all, the Lord rescued me. So I'm suffering and I'm being persecuted and I'm enduring it. And from them all, the Lord rescues me. So Paul's saying. Uh, it's kind of, he's kind of holding up both uh, his responsibility, you know, human responsibility and divine sovereignty. I endured persecution. It was something that I had to do. It was not something that I could just uh, passively like punt on and mail it in and act like it wasn't my job, wasn't my problem. And yet the Lord was the one who had to do it. I didn't endure because I'm bigger and stronger. I didn't endure because I'm more resilient. I didn't endure because I'm you know, took some, some supplements and some, some multivitamins. I endured because, because God rescued me from this per, persecution. God preserved my life. God sovereignly allowed the suffering to come into my life, and then God sovereignly saw to it that I would persevere through it and survive through it. I endured because God rescued me. And then verse 12, this is not just my experience, right? It's not just my experience that, that, that I endured because the Lord rescued me. It's, it's the common normative experience for all Christians. Indeed, all who live, all who desire to live a Christian life, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I'm telling you descriptively what has happened to me in the past But I'm also telling you prophetically what is going to happen to you in the future. Don't be surprised when suffering comes into your life. Don't be surprised when people seek to persecute you and to to hurt you. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be be deceived by false teaching that says that there's no place for suffering in the Christian life. There is. Don't buy into the the worldly notion that you have some God-given right... To, to win all the time, and to have your way all the time, and to get what you want all the time, right? Don't buy into this notion that your life should always look exactly like you want it to look, and that you should never have to do anything that you don't have to do. That's not Christian. That's, that's secularism, right? This idea that, that I don't want to do anything that I don't want to do, and I want my life to look exactly like I want, is not a Christian notion, That's right. That's, that's the mindset of a person who says, I'm on the throne of my life. God's not on the throne. God doesn't get to say what happens in my life. God doesn't get to tell me that I have to suffer. I'm on the throne. If I say I don't want to suffer, I don't have to. If I don't want to defer to other people, I don't have to. If I don't want to submit to authority, I don't have to. If I don't want to experience persecution from others, I don't have to. That's, that's non-Christian secular thought. It's, it's a Christian virtue to submit to authority and defer to others even when they're persecuting you, even when they are, you know, making decisions that you do not agree with. Paul says if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be godly, then you will be persecuted and you will suffer. You will not get everything you want. You will have to do things you don't have to do. You will experience pain. You will get sick. Your friends and family members, people that you love, will die. That's what it means to be a Christian. So be prepared for it and and expect it right because because just because you know just because you timothy you know god and you followed me and my teaching and my conduct and my aim and my my faith and my page like just because you're like this doesn't mean that other people are right you might be a godly person following jesus but there are other people verse 13 evil people and imposters who will go on from bad to worse right So you you and your fellow church members and your fellow Christians might be walking with God, but, but you guys are the few that have gone through the narrow gate and are on the hard, difficult path. But there are a lot of people who have gone through the wide gate that are on the path that is easy. They don't love Jesus, and they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they go from bad to worse. They go from being indifferent to you to actively opposing you. They go from verbally maligning you to physically being violent with you, right? They make it their goal to oppress you and silence you and cause you distress. That's how evil people in the world are going to respond to you as a Christian. So don't be surprised when persecution comes. In fact, Jesus says, when persecution comes, that is uh, an opportunity to rejoice, because that means that you're blessed, and that you are, you know, your reward in heaven is going to be great. So be prepared, be ready to persevere, and be on guard against these evil people, and these imposters going from bad to worse. But, Lest you think for a second that your posture against the world, your posture against evil people who are persecuting you, should be strictly one of defensive and, and uh, you know counter attack and be on guard and separate from them and make sure that they, like I'm I'm against them. I want to win and I want them to lose. Right. The next line kind of gives us some additional pers- Back, Vic. Uh, the next line gives us some additional perspective on these evil people and these impostors. He says uh, they're, they're evil, they're imposters, they're going from bad to worse, they're deceiving and being deceived. So there's, there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which evil people in the world who are persecuting Christians and causing them to suffer, they are the ones doing the deceiving. They are the bad guys. They're at fault. They're wrong. They're doing it on purpose. They are complicit. There's a sense in which that's true, and there's another sense in which evil people in the world who are persecuting Christians and causing them to suffer, they themselves are being deceived. Which reframes the situation a little bit and changes our attitude toward them right we're not just talking about an an evil deceiving scheming uh you know wicked person who has it out for you we're also talking about someone who themselves are being deceived they're being taken advantage of they're being hurt they're being exploited if our if our enemies are deceivers and that's it then our stance toward them will be antagonistic And it will be one of righteous indignation and one of, I want to put, I want to win and I want them to lose. Stay away from them, guard against them, right? If they attack, you counterattack. But if evil people in the world are also being deceived, then rather than antagonism and defensiveness and combativeness, our posture would be one of charity and compassion and kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt and, and trying as best as we can to assume the best about them. Which is probably this. This kind of thinking is probably what undergirds Jesus's command, where He says, "I don't only want you to love your neighbors; I also want you to love your enemies." Right? Uh, you know, if if our enemies are strictly deceivers, then it would be difficult and maybe not even necessary to love them. But if our if our enemies are deceivers and also themselves being deceived, then we we do have an obligation, right? Consider how you would feel about. All right, like imagine in your head and consider just the the instinctive response that comes to you when you think of a cult leader right. I watched some documentary a few months ago about the the guy, the Jonestown guy who like you know. He's dangerous and malicious and, and takes advantage of people and takes all of their money and seduces them and, and kidnaps them down to South America and cuts them off from their families and their communities and he makes everyone bow down to him and makes everyone pay homage to him and he sleeps with all the women and underage girls and then makes them all drink Kool-Aid with cyanide in it and he murders them. He's a bad guy. Right? A cult leader, bad guy, he's a deceiver, it's right to be upset at him, it's right to want to guard against him, it's, it's right to want to, to stop him from doing what he's doing. But consider how you feel about the people in the cult, the victims of this guy's deception. Right? The people that have been kidnapped and trafficked and violated and raped and, and murdered, they were deceived by him. And we feel different for the members of the cult who have been victimized than we do for the leader of the cult that was taking advantage of them. And Paul says, if you only feel one way or the other about sin and sinners, then that's problematic. There's a sense in which sinners are deceivers, right? And we should have a sense of righteous indignation about, about sin and sinners. But there's a sense in which you know, maybe there's a sense in which they're being deceived. Maybe not from other people. Maybe from other people. But but if nothing else. Uh, sinners and those who are persecuting the people of God are being deceived by Satan who's called the father of lies and who makes it his business to deceive and take advantage of, of people or maybe they're being deceived by their own heart that Jeremiah describes as being deceitfully wicked above all things. Right? Their hearts have the capacity to deceive themselves and cause them to fall into sin against their, their will. So Paul says evil people who persecute Christians are deceivers, and we need to be careful of them, and they are being deceived, and we need to be compassionate toward them, and we need to genuinely try to help them be free from the deception that they are, are experiencing. That's Paul thus far in verses 10 to 13, right? Uh, You have followed my example. I have been exemplary, and I want you to follow me, and I want you to be exemplary like me. I've endured persecution. I have suffered, and God has preserved me through it. And I want you to, to be on guard against sin and sinners, but I also want you to be compassionate toward sin and sinners. Those are kind of the exhortations that Paul has framed out thus far, which raises the question, all right, Paul, how am I to do that? How am I to, right, th- this seems out of reach. This seems too difficult for me, right? How can I have this doctrine that is pure and right? And how can I exhibit love and patience and endure through suffering? How can I love my enemies even when they are actively pursuing me, pers- persecuting me? How can I do all of this? And in verses 14 and 15, Paul uh, explains The first step toward living this godly Christian life and relating in a godly way to the world around you is to immerse yourself in and root yourself deeply in and and to to, to dwell in the word of, of God. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Be rooted in the sacred writings. Be rooted in the words of God. Be rooted in the, the Bible. Spend unhurried time in the Bible. Study it. Meditate it. Memorize it. Pray over it. If you want to grow in holiness and in how you can live for God, it starts by exposing yourself to the words that God has spoken to you. You can't walk with God and glorify Him and live a life that pleases Him if you are ignoring the words that He is speaking to you. So read God's Word, which, conveniently, Timothy, you have been doing for a long time, right? From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. If you remember back to chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul says that Timothy became a Christian through the ministry of his mother, Eunice, and through the ministry of his grandmother, Lois. They taught him the Bible when he was a small child. They read him stories from the Bible. They told him about Jesus. They told him about how he needed to trust in Jesus to be saved from his sin. They encouraged him to repent. They encouraged him to live a godly life. This was Timothy's experience. This was the air that he breathed ever since he was a small child. What <clears throat> should which should be encouraging to us if we have small kids or if we have small grandkids, right? Timothy was the product of a godly mother and a godly grandmother. And so if you're a mother of small kids or a grandmother of small kids, right, what you're doing is not in vain. What you're doing is of profound importance, right? Continue to teach and shape and develop and mentor these kids, and then they will, in turn, continue to believe what they learned from you as they grow older. <clears throat> and why? So, 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 uh, be. Uh, continue in what you've learned and what you've believed, what you've learned from childhood and and have been acquainted with in the sacred writings. Why? Why is it important to read the Bible? Why is it important to know the Bible? What's so good about the Bible that I should read it and care about it? How is it going to help me in my life and in my faith? Because the Bible is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. (coughs) Hmm. So the reason why Paul points Timothy to the Bible... The reason why Paul reminds Timothy of how his mother and grandmother taught him the Bible. The reason why Paul says that the Bible is key in helping him to obey the instructions that he just gave is because the Bible is the powerful word of God and the Bible will change you and the Bible will make you wise for salvation. The Bible will teach you how to know God and how to be reconciled. The Bible is where you see and meet Jesus. It's where you uh, hear the gospel of Jesus explained to you fully and clearly. The Bible tells you who God is. The Bible tells you that God is the sovereign creator of all things and that you are accountable to him. The Bible tells you who you are, that you're created in God's image to reflect his glory and to make much of him. The Bible tells you about your ruin and sin how you, like your father Adam before you, fell into sin through active rebellion and passive indifference, right? The Bible tells you how you're separated from God and under his wrath. The Bible tells you about how Jesus came to save you, how the the eternal second person of the Trinity left his throne in heaven and came to earth and lived a perfect life without sin and died a sacrificial death for sin in your place. The Bible tells of how Jesus took our punishment and how he gives us his righteousness to wear like a like a garment so that we could be saved and forgiven and reconciled to God the bible tells us how to personally appropriate The salvation that Jesus has secured for us by turning from our sin and turning from our self-righteousness and trusting in Jesus. The Bible tells us how the Holy Spirit will come and live in our heart and empower us to live a godly Christian life so that we can know God and enjoy Him and glorify Him. All of that is what we see and read about and experience in the Bible. The Bible is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. So if you want to glorify God, if you want to live a life that's a godly example to others. If you want to endure through persecution, if you want to love your enemies, right? You, you do it. You start by by immersing yourself in the Word of God, by seeing the glory of Jesus in the Bible, trusting Him, walking with Him, rooting yourself deeply in the Bible, and trusting in who Jesus is, right? The person and work of Jesus is the centerpiece of the Bible. It's what the Bible is all about. It's also what communion is all about, right? The person and work of Jesus is this, right? If you want to walk with God, start by rooting yourself in the Bible and reading about Jesus. And if you want to celebrate what Jesus has done for you, that is done at communion, where we come together as God's people Right? We're all suffering, we're all struggling, we're all trying our best, but we come together and we remind ourselves and we remind one another and we remember together that Jesus has died for us. Jesus' body was broken for us, Jesus' blood was shed for us, and our hearts are encouraged by that, by that news, right? And we encourage the hearts of others by that good news, and we celebrate that reality together. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, we invite you to celebrate communion with us, right, during the final song, which I'm going to lead us in just a minute. Come forward, take the the bread, take the juice. They're individually wrapped, so they're, you know, sanitary and clean. Uh, And then take it back to your seat and just take a minute or two to reflect. While we're singing together, um, confess your sin to Jesus, repent of it, remember the grace of Jesus and receive it, and thank God for the truth of the gospel as you partake. If you're not a Christian, we ask you not to receive communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead, we invite you to take Christ, to turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and to personally appropriate what he has done on the cross for you by by trusting in him and placing your faith in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us. Lord, that you have not left us without a word from you. We thank you that you have given us your revealed word that makes us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we could be a people who read your word and meditate on your word and internalize your word and obey your word. And Lord, we pray that as we do, we pray that we could see the gospel, that we could see and savor Jesus, and that we could trust in him and persevere through suffering and live lives that are godly and that are exemplary. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.